Good morning. Have you ever had doubts about Christianity because you knew some Christians? Have you ever had doubts about Christianity because you knew some Christians who were incredibly unpleasant, and then you knew some non-Christians who were fantastic, and you compared the two groups and you thought, like, what good is this religion? I mean, maybe this is just church. Maybe it's not time to be honest, but I was thinking maybe we should, because I feel like I've heard stories like this, and maybe some of you have thought this in your own life, and you've had stories that you tell, like, well, yeah, I have this uncle, and he's a Baptist preacher, and I just can't stand him, and the way that he treats us, it's just awful, and whenever I have to go back home for family gatherings or Thanksgiving or whatever, I just, I stay on the other side of the house from him as far away as I can, and then, and then I have this cousin, and she's a Buddhist. Well, she's like halfway Buddhist. She has like not all the way in, but she's got Buddhist quotes all up in her house, and she's literally the nicest person I know, and so she's just, she's like my role model. Like she's what I want to be when I grow up. And so I just look at that situation. Maybe you've been in that situation and you've thought like Christianity must be defective because she doesn't seem to need it and it didn't fix him, right? We're going to be getting into that topic this morning. Are you ready? All right. So we're in our series, Life of Paul. We are now at part 15. I need to move this back a little bit. I feel a little claustrophobic with the way it is right now. Um, We are in part 15, and we are picking up where we left off last week, which is Paul is on a, well, he was on a ship headed to Rome. Remember that? He was being transferred from Caesarea to Rome on a ship. Huge storm hits the ship, destroys the ship right as it is shipwrecking into an island. You remember that's where we left off? They they, They shipwreck onto this island. They hit a sandbar. The people wash up on the shore, and that's where we left off. So we're gonna pick up right there. Acts chapter 28, if you have your Bible with you, turn there. I'm going to read to you our passage this morning, which is Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. It's a short passage, and we'll just go from there. Acts 28, starting in verse 1. Once ashore, so this is right after the events of what we learned last week. Once ashore, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness, for they lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. As Paul gathered a bundle of brushwood and put it on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself to his hand. When the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man is probably a murderer. And though he has escaped the sea, justice does not allow him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They expected that he would swell up or suddenly drop dead. But after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, They changed their minds and said he was a god. Now, in the area around that place was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. Publius' father was in bed suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to him and praying and laying his hands on him, he healed him. After this, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. So they heaped many honors on us. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. So that's our story this morning. These 276 guys who are on this ship smash into this island. They wash up onto the shore and immediately the the islanders that are there take them in and build a fire. It says it was still raining, so they're all cold. They all just came out of the ocean and so they build a fire. I don't know how they built a fire in the rain. I'm guessing maybe it was under some sort of shelter. And the islanders built a fire in order to warm the people up and took them in and, and cared for them. And so as they're making this fire, Paul joins in in the gathering of the sticks and the wood for the fire. And in the midst of that, a snake bites him. And as this snake fastens itself onto his hand and bites him, all of the islanders freak out, right? 
And the theology of the islanders at this point of the story seems to be pretty similar to the theology of the movie Final Destination. I don't know how many of you have seen Final Destination. Um, I'm not recommending you see it. it was, I saw it in my 20s. It was a horror movie, and I have different standards now than I did then, so it might not, it might not be a good movie. But I can remember that the, the premise of the movie was there was this guy, I think it was a guy, who was, um, he was supposed to be on a plane flight. He had tickets to get on a plane. He missed his flight. The plane left without him, and then the plane crashed. And the idea in the movie was he was supposed to die in the plane crash. So it's a horror movie. So what happens is for the rest of the movie, like terrible things keep happening to this guy um, because fate or whatever it is, is trying to make sure that he dies because he was supposed to die on the plane. I don't think, I can't remember the movie ever saying it was God. It was just kind of like the universe or the fates or whatever it may be. But the idea behind the movie was you can't cheat death. If you're supposed to go down in a plane crash and, you, and then you don't, you're gonna slip in the bathtub or fall off a ladder or something's gonna happen to you and you're gonna die. And it seems like that's what these people believe, right? When they see this, this vipers latch onto his hand, they go, oh, okay, that's what was supposed, he was supposed to have died in the storm. He was supposed to have died in the storm and he didn't. So now he's gonna die of a viper bite. And then you look at verses five and six, they're great. Verse five says this. It says, however, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, I don't know how that went down, but the way it's written so straightforwardly, it just, it sounds like Paul was really chill about it. Just like, eh, you know, and just snake bite and he just tossed the creature into the fire and just moved on with his life. But the islanders were not chill about it, okay? Verse six, they expected that he would swell up or suddenly drop dead. And then this next phrase, I think, is maybe my favorite phrase in the whole thing. It says, but after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him. I don't know how long a long time is, but it's just, it's funny for me to picture. Like he gets bit by a snake, he throws into the fire, he moves on with his life, and they're all going, all right, let's watch. (laughs) And they watch for a long time. And I'm assuming he just went, he went and gathered up some more wood and then he ate his dinner and then he's getting ready for bed. And like, they're just sitting there watching like, oh, does he look like he's getting bigger to you? He looks about the same size. He's probably gonna fall over any minute though. Yeah, look, look, oh, nope, just sitting down. He's just sitting down. (laughs) Same size? Yeah, I think so too. He's not puffing up, is he? nothing's happening, right? And then, like, I don't know. I don't know if it was hours. I don't know how long a long time is, but at some point they went, okay, I guess he's fine. And then they switched and said, well, then he must be a god, which is just funny that those are the two choices, like murderer or god. Like, if you get bit by a snake, you're one of those two. And so that perception that he was a god was probably not helped when he began healing people on the island. That is something that happened earlier in the story, if you remember, I think maybe it was Lystra, um, where they healed a person, like Paul healed somebody by the power of God, and people thought he was a God. And so I bet you that happened in this situation where they had probably a very hard time not assuming that he was some sort of God as he was using these healing powers that that God had given him as he was healing. Um, Now, from what I know of Paul, I'm, I'm sure that he did his best, and I don't know if there was a language barrier on this island or not, but I'm sure he did his best to explain to them that he is not God, right? That he does this by the power of God, but that he is not God. And then the story ends where they, and you'll find out next week, there was three months that they were on the island and then they get on the boat and they go on and they finish their journey to Rome. That's what's gonna happen next after they leave this island. So what do we do with this brief story that we find at the end of the book of Acts? Well, I mean, there's multiple things we could do. Uh, One thing we could do is acknowledge it as history In other words, we are reading about how Paul got to Rome and this is how he got to Rome. Like this is one of the things that happened along the way. It happened, so they wrote it down. 
Um, one thing we can do is we can notice how God provided for them. This is something I really didn't notice until this morning, that these people show up essentially penniless. I mean, I don't know if anybody was able to have their wallet or their purse with them, but for the most part, these people come off this ship with nothing, right, onto this island in the middle of nowhere. And then at the end of the story, it says, they gave us what we needed. Like as they get on a ship and head to Rome, like these people who have nothing leave the island with whatever they need in order to continue their journey. God provided for them in the middle of nowhere. Um, one thing you could do when you come to the stories, you could focus on the viper part. That's exciting. And you could point out how it matches Mark chapter 16, verse 18. Um, we can even acknowledge that this passage is probably a favorite at one of those snake handling churches. Have you heard of this before? Have you heard of snake handling churches? Like up in Appalachia, I think like North and South Carolina, not like in the cities, but like way out in the middle of nowhere. I've heard, I've never been, but I've heard they have these like snake handling churches. And I just, I bet they love this passage. I bet you they do like five or six week series on this passage. Um, one thing you could do is you could focus on the healing ministry of Paul, and you could point out how similar it was to Jesus's healing ministry. Back in Mark chapter one, there's a time where Jesus, I believe he's um, visiting with someone staying at their house and he heals their relative. And then once news is heard that he healed their relative, multiple people from the city all came to be healed by Jesus. And that's almost the exact same thing that happens here with Paul. The difference being, it seems to me, Jesus healed by his own power. Paul healed in the name of Jesus. But I'm not gonna focus on any of those parts. For this sermon, I'd really like to focus on, I really just one thing, you could call it two things. There, there are two observations I wanna make about this story. I think the observations are fairly obvious. When I say them, I think you're gonna be like, well, yeah, yeah, I could've come up with that. Okay, I'm gonna point out two observations and I wanna point out how important these two things are, how important it is for us to consider how they relate to the rest of our theology. So these are the two observations I wanna point out. Number one. The people on this island were not Christians, okay? The people on this island were very, very likely not Christians. I say very likely, but I mean, I almost feel like I could go all the way to just say they're not Christians. Because if these people were Christians, certainly the story would have said so. <laughs> if Paul shipwrecks onto an island and there's a church of people there and all these people believe in Jesus and here comes Paul and, well, we believe in Jesus, you believe in Jesus. Oh, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Like certainly Luke wouldn't have meant, would have mentioned that. That would have been incredible if they happened to shipwreck onto an island filled with Jesus followers. And the people in the story, you may have noticed, they don't really talk the way Christians talk, right? So I would say it's safe to say, Luke presents these people to us, these people on this island, he presents them to us as non-Christians. Okay, let me show you a couple of places where we can get that idea. First, look at verse four. Verse four says, when the local people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, this man is probably a murderer. Though he escaped the sea, justice does not allow him to live. If you notice my version of the Bible actually capitalizes the word justice. And I think that's right. I think that they're using it as a proper name. That the word there is DK, the goddess of justice. That what the islanders were saying most likely is, I don't think they were saying the concept of justice does not allow him to live. I think they were saying the goddess justice, like the goddess of justice, DK, does not allow him to live. That, in other words, that there's this goddess that makes sure that like murderers get what they're supposed to. And so she threw a storm at him and apparently missed. So now she's throwing a viper at him. I think that that's what this is referring to. Lady justice does not allow him to live. And if that's true, if they believe in the goddess DK, then they're probably not Christians, right? They're probably like a lot of people at this point um, in the Roman empire, believing in all sorts of gods and goddesses. Another place that show, you can see this is verse six. Um, it says, they expected he would swell up or suddenly drop dead, but after they waited a long time and saw nothing unusual happen to him, what happens? They changed their minds and said he was a god. That's just, that seems to me kind of like superstitious paganism, multiple gods and goddesses kind of belief, not what Christians would do, 
right? Christians, I mean, yes, we do believe that God came as a man one time, Jesus Christ. We would, you know, that's the gospel. But the idea that anytime something supernatural happens to someone, or even, I don't know if it's supernatural even, just as they survive a snake bite, um, that that would make them God, like that's, that's not really a Christian thing. And so I think it's fair to say, do you agree with me? The people on this island, they're not Christians, right? Okay, so that's first observation. People on this island, they're probably not Christians. Second observation, the people on this island were extremely nice. Did you notice that? They're not believers in our God and they are extremely nice. Look at verse two. The local people showed us, what's the, what does he say? Extraordinary kindness, okay? Not even regular kindness. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness for they lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. It's still raining, why? Because this is still the tail end of that storm from last week. So you've got to picture this situation. You've got these islanders. They're living their life. They're living their normal life. They're raising their kids. They're paying their bills. They're growing their crops. One day a storm happens. And at the tail end of the storm, a ship crashes into their beach. And 276 strangers just walk in out of the ocean. And what did they do? Did they try to kill the people? Were they worried about their safety? Well, who are these people that are invading our island? Did they go up and say, well, we got our thing. You can go out in the woods and like figure out your own place that you're going to live, but not in our houses. I hope you brought food with you because you ain't eating anything that we made. No. 276 strangers just walk up out of the sea and they take care of them. And they lit a fire and said, let's, let's warm you up. These people were extraordinarily kind. Look at verse 7. In that area, there was an estate belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius. I'm guessing this guy was like the richest guy on the island. What did he do? It says, he welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. This guy on this island said, hey, why don't you come stay with me? Why don't you come stay with me, total strangers that just washed up on the beach? Why don't you stay in my bedrooms and eat some of my food? These people were really nice. And then look at verse 10. So they heaped many honors on us. Now this makes sense because of the heat. This is probably in reaction to the healing that had happened. So of course, they're very grateful for all the diseases being healed. But still, it's, it's, it's right and good to react, grateful when good things happen to you. And when we sailed, they gave us what we needed. I don't know if that's money or supplies, but they gave them stuff as they left. These people were generous. So those are the two observations. You could have figured it out on your own, but I just wanted to point out to you, the people on this island... They're not Christians, and they're extremely nice. And that brings us back to the questions that I began this sermon with. What do we do with that truth? What do we do with the fact that there are non-Christians that are nicer than some of the Christians we know? And here's why that's a problem, at least for some of us, because some of us, probably some of us in this room, tend to think that the official teaching of Christianity is Christians are good, non-Christians are bad. Right, like that's the official doctrine. Christians are nice, non-Christians are mean, okay? And then one day we meet a mean Christian and then we meet a nice non-Christian and then we go, what am I supposed to believe? And so I'm here to say to you, don't freak out. The Bible does not teach that Christians are always nice and that non-Christians are always mean. So if you come across that and you go, wait a minute, look at this bird. He's a jerk. Look at it. Oh, okay. What am I supposed to do? My faith is crumbling. Your faith does not need to crumble. The Bible doesn't even teach that. You don't have to go, how am I going to believe the Bible when I'm looking with my eyes and I'm seeing something? No, the Bible doesn't even teach that Christians are always nice and the non-Christians are always mean. 
So what I want to do is I want to share with you five theological truths that are related to this. These are five theological truths that sort of just came into my mind, um, I guess it was about a week and a half ago, and so I wrote them down. And so I just I want to share with you the five things that I think are true that are very helpful in thinking through this issue in our life. So they're going to come up on the screen. I'm going to start with number one right now. Number one, some people who claim to be Christians and are jerks actually aren't Christians. So I'm going to start, we're going to start here. And I say we're going to start here. We're certainly not going to end here. I just want to start here because I do think this is true. And this explains some of the occasions. Okay, not always, not always, just sometimes I think this is true. Some people who claim to be Christians and are jerks actually aren't Christians. Why is that? I think it's because there are some people that are confused as to what being a Christian is. There are people who say that they're Christians, but they think that they're Christian because they go to church every week or they think they were born a Christian. You know, like mama was a Lutheran, dad was a Presbyterian. I guess I've been a Christian my whole life, all right? And so they just assume like, well, yeah, I must, I must be a Christian. So they say they're a Christian and then they do something that we're like, ooh, that is not what we believe in. And then sometimes we go, whoa, whoa, why is this person who says they're a Christian doing this, right? And it's like, don't freak out. Some people who say they're Christians, they're not even Christians. You don't have to wonder, well, why aren't they acting that way? Because they're not, they're not, even, they're not even a Christian. Okay, so that is true. I think that happens a lot. But that does not explain every situation. And it is important for you to know that that does not explain every situation. You can try to explain every situation this way, but you're going to mess up with, you're, you're going to mess your definition of Christian up, okay? Because if you say, well, every single time someone's a jerk, well, that just means they're not a Christian. Well, then your definition of Christian is nice person, okay? Or nice person who believes in Jesus. And that's a problem because that's not how the Bible describes what a Christian is. So you, you've got to deal with that, all right? Sure, if you make your definition of Christian, nice person who believes in Jesus, then yeah, you're never going to meet a mean Christian, like by definition, right? Every time you meet a mean person, not, they're not a Christian. They can't be, right? Because nice people is who I've defined Christian. But yeah, but that's, that's not the way the Bible describes it. This, is, this does not explain all the situations. So let's move on to point number two. This one's important. Some, some people who claim to be Christians and are jerks actually are Christians, okay? That is true. You might go, well, can you show me where that is in the Bible? I'm so glad you asked. Let me show it to you. I'm gonna, I want to show it to you right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 is where I'd like to begin. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. This is a very important verse. It's the verse right at the beginning of Corinthians. It's the part of the letter that shows who Paul is writing to. I want to make it very clear who the audience is because when I read some verses later on from 1 Corinthians, I want you to realize who it is he's talking to, okay? Who is his intended audience when he wrote this? This is who he was writing to. He wrote, to God's church at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, and called as saints with all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Who's he writing to? Christians. I mean, no, there's no way he's not, right? He's definitely writing to God's church at Corinth. He's definitely writing to Christians. You might go, well, maybe some non-Christians go to that church. Wait a minute. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified means like to be set apart as holy, similar to the word saints with all those in every place who call in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like he's piling description on description on description to make it so clear. I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to the sanctified people. I'm talking to the saints. I'm talking to the people who Jesus is their Lord. Could not be more clear he's talking to Christians. Now, I'm gonna flip two pages over in the same letter. He's talking to those same people. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. Therefore, to have legal disputes against one another is already a moral failure for you. Why not rather put up with injustice? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you act unjustly and cheat, and you do this to believers. Who's he talking to? 
He's talking to Christians. He's talking to Christians and he's saying that they have a moral failure. And he says to these people, you know what you are? You're cheaters. You guys are cheaters and you are acting unjustly. Who's he referring to? He says, you do this to believers. This is not Paul getting on to unbelievers. This is not Paul saying like, okay, you, you non-Christians out there, you're mean and you are being mean to the Christians and you need to stop being mean to the Christians. That's not what this verse is. He's telling Christians, you all are cheating each other. So there are jerks that are actually Christians. Paul wrote a letter to them. Let me show you another one, Colossians chapter three. Colossians chapter three, starting in verse 12. It says, therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved. Let's just pause right there. Could he be talking about anybody other than Christians? No, no way. God's chosen ones, holy and loved. That's who he's referring to here. Now look what he says to them. Put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Why? Because that's how Christians are supposed to act. Right? We don't always do it perfectly, but that's how we're supposed to act. We're supposed to be people of compassion who show kindness. We're supposed to be people who are humble and we show gentleness and patience. Now look at the rest of the verse. Accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Now that's interesting. Who is he telling them to forgive? Is he talking to non-Christians? Is he talking to Christians and telling those Christians, hey, you need to learn how to forgive those unbelievers out there. You need to learn how to forgive these non-Christians that are mean to you. Is that what he's talking about? No, he's telling the Christians that they need to forgive one another. What is assumed in the, in the command that Christians are to forgive one another? All right, number three. Non-Christians are capable of good. Non-Christians are capable of doing good. How do we know that? Well, our passage this morning is pretty clear. These people were very nice to Paul and the other passengers on this ship. And I don't think this is the only place in the Bible that refers to good deeds that are done by someone who's not following God. And I would say in Romans chapter two, if you want another place in the Bible that talks about this, I think it's in Romans chapter two that it's saying this. It's verses 14 and 15. And it seems to be a place that indicates that unbelievers at times instinctively do what the law demands. That's what it says. It actually says Gentiles, but I think it's referring to unbelievers when it says Gentiles. The people out there who don't know the true God and they don't have the Old Testament, they don't have like thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not um, steal and you know, don't tell lies. Like they don't have that. And yet... They instinctively do what the law demands. There are people who don't even know the true God and they refrain from murder and they refrain from lying and they refrain from stealing and they, they help little old ladies across the street and they you know, help poor people. Like they just instinctively do what the law demands. But our current passage, I would say, is quite a testimony. The non-Christians are capable of doing good and they do good lots of times. Now, to be clear, it is not the kind of good that pleases God. And that's important to understand. Non-Christians do not do the kind of good that pleases God. And that's, you know this because Hebrews chapter 11, verse six says that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So it seems to me, someone who does not trust in God is able to do things that are demanded by God's law and able to refrain from things that God says um, is bad at times. But without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you do not do the good that God requires because you trust him, 
then it's not the kind of good that pleases God. The kind of good that we must do has to be good that's motivated from, I believe in God, I trust God. Apart from Christ, no one is capable of objective good. But we are capable of relative good. Let me explain what I mean by this. When I say we are not capable of objective good, what I mean by objective good is the holiness and the perfection that God requires. Objective good is the holiness and the perfection of God. It is the goodness that God has in himself. Like he is perfectly holy. He is perfectly good. And the goodness and the holiness that he requires, no human is ever good like God is good. And that's why I believe Jesus said, when he was on this earth, he said, um, no one but God is good. You remember that story where he said, why do you call me good? No one, no one is good but God. Why did Jesus say no one is good but God? I think because he's talking about objective good. No one is the holy perfection that we are supposed to be. No one is good like God is. No one is good but God. However, humans are capable of relative good. What is relative good? I mean, we can be good compared to other humans. You can have a human that's like more honest than average, right? Or more nice than most people, right? You can be a human that's good compared to other sinful human beings. The people on Malta were like this, right? They showed extraordinary kindness. When Luke says that, I think he's saying they showed us like above average kindness. They were, this, was, this was kindness that we wouldn't have expected. These islanders were nicer than most islanders would be. Taking us in, no questions asked, just bringing us in and feeding us and caring for us. These people were very kind. Not that they, are, they have the holiness and perfection of God. They, just, they were a lot nicer than, than other places we could have shipwrecked. All right, number four. Because of Jesus, Christians do become better over time. I do believe this. This is something that seems to me actually to be maybe more assumed in Scripture than it is taught directly. Um, although if it's taught directly, one of the places might be 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. You can look it up on your own, but it's, it talks about people who are, who are Christians, and it says that we are being transformed to be more like the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, if you want to look it up later, that people who really do like, understand God for who he is, they really do believe in Jesus, we are being transformed to be more like him. Um, but I think it's also implied probably in a lot of passages. Um, one example might be Philippians chapter four. There's a place in Philippians where Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content. You ever, do you know that passage? Paul says, I've learned the secret of being content in every situation. Paul says he learned contentment. Like at some point over time, I assume, he learned the secret of being at peace with his lot in life, whether it was good or bad. And the fact that he says he learned it makes me think there was a time he didn't know it right? And, and, I, and so he's writing this to the Philippians. So I think he's saying, this is a thing I didn't always know, but I now know. I have, I have learned contentment. And I bet you he's writing it to the Philippians because he's thinking probably not all of them have learned the secret of contentment. And so I want them to know. But for them to say that, I think the assumption is when you become a Christian, it's not like all of the virtues, like 100% of contentment just shoots into you at that moment. No, Paul at some point probably was a Christian who did not know the secret of contentment. And then one day he did know how to be content in this life and he wanted other Christians to learn the same lesson he learned. Because of, Christ, because of Jesus, Christians do become better over time. And then number five, and this one, uh, this, one's, this, is, this last point I think brings it all together, okay? 
This is it, number five. When it comes to virtues like kindness and generosity, different people begin at different places. This is so important. This is so important for you to get. And I'll say right now, I, I, I don't think I made this up. I'm pretty sure I heard this somewhere. So if you go like, whoa, he's a genius. I don't think I made this up. I, I think it was in my 20s that I heard it. I don't know where I got it from. It might've been in the writings of C.S. Lewis. If some of you are like really C.S. Lewis fans, let me know what book this is from, if it's from him. But if it's not from him, I don't know. I'm just letting you know. I don't think I made this concept up. Different people are at different stages, depending on their upbringing, depending on their temperament, depending on their personality. I think just different people are, are they, they, we don't all have the same starting place when it comes to how well-behaved we are, or how nice we are, how kind we are, how generous we are, how content we are. So imagine this. Imagine, okay, a scale of one to 10, okay? A scale of one to 10 when it comes to like virtue. Um, one is Hitler, 10 is Jesus, Okay. So picture on a scale of one to 10, on a scale of Hitler to Jesus, some people naturally, because of their upbringing and their personality, some people are naturally a three and some people are naturally a seven. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do I, I mean, do I have to prove this? Like, like I'm saying some people just, they have a personality where they're all uptight and they don't have any, where they're just thinking about themselves and I only know how to do it this way and I'm really easy, I'm not very flexible and I just get angry real easily. And other people, sometimes in the same family, raised the same way, just really chill and hey, no problem, you can take one of mine, right? And then upbringing also affects a lot of this stuff too, right? You have some people, they grow up in these households where they're very unhealthy and they don't understand morals very well because it was just a very like, ethically confusing time in their life. And other people grew up in a well-adjusted household with families that taught them good things. And some people grew up in an awful school and some people grew up in a wonderful school where they were like bullied just enough to have compassion on people, but not enough that they're like trying to fight everybody all the time, right? And so by the time you're like 12, I mean, isn't this true? By the time you're 12, some people are a three or a four and some people are like a seven. That's just, that's just where you are. You get what I'm trying to say? Some people are just naturally more well-behaved. They're nicer. They're more polite than other people are. Now, this is the thing you need to understand. So the person who is a three on a scale of one to 10, who comes to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and, and walks with Jesus for several years, may one day be a five. And they're still not as nice and as generous as just someone who was a natural seven. Isn't that confusing? And sometimes the guy who started off at three, not always, but sometimes the guy who started off at three is more poised to become a Christian because he realizes his need for a savior. Sometimes the person that, that perceives himself to be a three, they look in the mirror and they go, I'm terrible. And I've had multiple people in my life tell me I'm terrible. And I have burned every relational bridge in my life to the point that like nobody loves me or cares about me anymore except my mom. That's all I got. And sometimes that person who's had like the consequences of their life fall on top of them, they hit rock bottom and they say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I am messed up and you're the only one I know to turn to. Meanwhile, some people who are at a natural seven, well-adjusted, everybody likes them, not reaping a ton of consequences from their sin. Some of those, sometimes those people, they don't see their need for a savior. They're not perfect and they know it. They're certainly a sinner, but I think in some cases they think, I, I have no need for God. I have no need for Jesus. Why would I go to that church? I have no need for Christianity. I'm already better than most of the people I know. 
And you might say, oh, that's arrogant that they think that way. But think about it. In every group of friends, someone's the best one. Let's be honest, right? Someone's the best. It's got to be. Somebody's got to be the best one. And what if that person notices, okay? And they think to themselves, I don't need Christianity. I don't need God. I'm already better than most of the people in my life. Oh, in that sense, self-righteousness is a terrible drug that keeps you from God. So you could end up with a man who is drowning in sin and they trust in Christ. And after several years, they are much improved. And yet you stand them next to an atheist who is a natural seven. And then someone else looks at them and goes, look at that, look at that, look at that. I told you Jesus doesn't make a difference in anybody's life. And they would be wrong. And when people come across what I'm calling a natural seven, I think they think they found something that contradicts the Bible. And they have not. Look at Acts 28 just one more time. I want to just show you these verses one more time. Look at verse two. The local people showed us extraordinary kindness. For they lit a fire and took us all in since it was raining and cold. I want you to notice this. It's raining. So, so this, is, this is right as they're coming out from the storm. That's going to matter in just a little bit. They showed them kindness immediately. Look at verse 7. Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us hospitably for three days. They ate his food and he cared for them. They were total strangers to him. And then look at verse 10. When we sailed... They gave us what we needed. 276 guys going off to Rome and they gave them whatever it is they needed in order to do that trip. I want you to notice that it wasn't because of the gospel that these people were so nice. It couldn't have been, right? The story doesn't say that's why it was. And I think if it were, the story would have said that because of Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. In fact, you can't even, you can't even try because I imagine someone would go, well, maybe, maybe Paul evangelized them and that's why they got so nice right? Maybe, it's, maybe Luke doesn't write this part of the story down, but maybe it happened. Maybe Paul showed up and he did what he always does in every city. He told them about Jesus and then they believed in Jesus. And then in reaction to that, now all these people are Christians. And so that in reaction to the gospel that they just heard, and now they're all Christians and they said, hey, why don't you come stay in our house? Hey, why don't we give you whatever it is that you need, right? Maybe, maybe it doesn't say that, but maybe Paul evangelized them and it's all their Christianness that caused all this. Nope. Verse two doesn't allow that. Look at verse two. They showed us extraordinary kindness while it was raining and cold. They were nice right away. There wasn't time for Paul to have evangelized them. They walked out of the water wet and the people were immediately extraordinarily kind to them. There was no time for them to become Christians. There's no mention in the story that anybody on that island became a Christian. Now, I don't know. Now, from what I know of Paul, it's hard for me to imagine that Paul didn't tell them about Jesus. I bet you he did. But there's nowhere in the story that it says that they believed. So I want to end this sermon with an image in your mind. I want you to imagine a party. And I want you to imagine um, one of the attenders at that party is um, a Christian who started off as a two and is now a four. A Christian who started off as a two, their life was a wreck, they believe in Jesus, and they have been, they have been working on self-control and love and joy and peace, and God has been working in their life and answering their prayers so they start off as a two and they're now a four, okay? And they're at this party. They're at the punch bowl talking to another person. And the, the other person is a, a very popular eight who is not a follower of Jesus. 
and they're both talking to each other. Can you, I want you to picture the conversation. Two that's now a four talking to the very popular eight who's not a Christian. They're sitting there by the punch bowl talking. And then I want you to imagine there's a third person at the party who's watching the two of them talk, listening to the words they use, listening to the way they talk and what they're... Have you, can you picture it in your mind? Okay, what character do you most relate to? Because I have something I want to say to all three types of people. If you are here this morning and you are person number one, you're the person at the party who goes, wow, this person doesn't even know God and they're better than me. This is so discouraging. I've been a Christian for years now and I've been trying. I've been like, be nice, be nice, be nice. I'm trying to be careful and don't do everything you think to do. I mean, I'm trying really hard. And it's been years now and now I'm talking to this person that does not even know Jesus They're more well-behaved than me. They're nicer than me. They're kinder than me. They're more generous than me. This is just discouraging. If you're that person, I want to say this to you. Listen, I know sometimes the fight against sin is discouraging and long. But hang in there. Keep pursuing righteousness. Don't give up. And know that God has got you. God has got you and your righteous deeds are not something you do to get God to love you, but rather they are your reaction to the fact that he already loves you and he has already saved you. All right, if you're person number two at the party, I wanna say this to you. You might really be an eight. I guess somebody's gotta be. But know this, you are not a 10. You are not perfectly righteous and meeting God's standards of holiness. You are a real sinner who just happens to be better than your friends. And I'm telling you, please get this. Better than your friends is not enough to get you through judgment day. You may know this instinctively or not, but let me just try to explain what I mean by that. If a criminal has committed a crime, like a criminal has actually committed a crime, The fact that they've done a lot of nice things in the meantime, or the fact that they've committed a lot less crimes than other criminals, that does not change whether they are guilty or innocent of the crime they're on trial for, right? Relative goodness is not what you need on judgment day. Objective goodness is what you need on judgment day. And objective goodness is only available by gift and it is only available through faith in Jesus Christ. And then if you're person number three at the party watching person number one and two talk and and you think that your observation has revealed a contradiction within Christianity, I just wanted to say to you, not so. Your observation matches with the teaching of Christianity. Let's pray. God, it seems to me that these three types of people are here. There's gotta be somebody here who's discouraged. And then just pray that you would encourage them and help them to continue to follow after you. And you would assure them of your love. That you accepted them, not because they were so impressive. And so that's not how you keep your relation, they keep their relationship with you. I pray for those of us who may be self-righteous. Pray that you would tear down that obstacle so that they would come to know you and trust in you. 
And I pray for those of us in this room that look at these things sometimes and go, wow, I don't know. Is this, is this stuff about Jesus true? I pray that they would be encouraged to find out that your word addresses this. I pray that any words that were said today that were just merely of me, I pray they would be quickly forgotten. But that which is of you, I pray that it would be remembered for a long time and it would make a great difference in our lives. And we ask this just knowing that you are God and by the power of your spirit, you are able to say yes to that prayer. And so we ask it. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.